Why are they shooting us? They're inherently violent. They could have a Palestinian state if only they went back to the negotiating table and talked with Israel instead of using violence. Emmanuel Nakshon is the spokesperson for the Israeli Foreign Affairs Ministry. Well, I perfectly understand that many Palestinians look at the Israeli occupation as a source of uh, anger. But they should understand that the reality is totally different. You cannot blame everything and anything on the Israeli occupation. They want someone to say we want to kill the Jews. They want someone to say that we don't agree about any kind of solution. They want someone to show that the Palestinian aggression and the Palestinian uh, fanatic attitude. They don't want a Palestinian moderate person talking about peace, talking about real solutions, talking, talking about justice, human rights, accepting others, believing in diversity. They don't want that at all. You can't talk about non-violence when you see settlers burning kids and burning women. Traditional warfare is coded masculine. Man versus man, army versus army. Armies are trained to fight other soldiers and other armies. They're prepared for wars against forces with equal power. They're not prepared for guerrilla fighters, resistance fighters, terrorists. Anyone whose fight is sly or non-traditional, not martial, and not traditionally male-only is more female-coded. And like all things feminine in a patriarchal world is more suspect and thus more condemned. Thus, coded female, anything other, resistance fighters as opposed to regular army, ununiformed fighters, seems more threatening to the patriarchal order, the people with the overwhelming power, than an equal opposing army would. This is how the threat of a knife attack can seem greater than the threat of an invasion. The threat of an unknown, of mystery, is just the threat of marginalized people acquiring power. And it makes sense that once you give everything to security, you'd be so frightened of the smallest ways that security could be breached. Safe in your tank, you imagine a knife bursting through. If we would open our borders now and remove all security restrictions, we would not be able even to conduct this interview in the street because we could be knifed by Palestinian terrorists at any given moment. The threat of an unleashed other power, having to relinquish power and control. Also, it's interestingly Orwellian that Israeli Jews want the security by force to be safe in Palestinian territory, not as equal neighbors, but as conquerors. And then they get annoyed that Palestinians aren't into that. It's very, I want the power to deny you your power. Safety, security, it's really fear of equality, fear of the leveling of power differentials. If you imagine the people that you're subjugating as subhuman monsters, inherently violent, then you have to keep them caged at all costs. The police are deadly afraid of the people that they surveil and control. That's why they shoot so many people. The armor they're wearing makes them more and more afraid. Hebron, one of the biggest towns in the occupied Palestinian West Bank. If Hebron has a Jewish history, it doesn't mean that they own it. And it doesn't mean, if it's with the Palestinians, it doesn't mean that they can't visit it or live in it. This is something very important they should understand. Hebron, come and pay money for my future tourist company, and I give you the best tour, visiting everything. And you will be welcome and eating the Palestinian food. You don't need to be protected or escorted by the army. Because if you are visiting the people, you are protected by them. 
the chance to be attacked will be almost zero. But if you are with the army, the chance is high. So if they, if they believe in a history in Hebrew, they don't need to support the settlers. They destroy their image by to try to claim it. Well. And as, as they have a history, there is a history before them too. And a history for everybody. This is 2015 now. What are you talking about 2000 years back? Nobody believes in that. Nobody wants to go back to the period even. Okay, you throw your smartphone and you start living with the, you know, with the basics. Then we talk about, you know, that you want to go back to 4,000 years. Fear of underclasses rising up creates overcompensating violence. If guerrillas attack, the army says that wasn't fair. They weren't playing fair. They weren't wearing uniforms. A German occupation officer argues that the resistance fighters should have worn armbands. They weren't an army behaving like an army. And this all heightens and spirals and escalates. Pierre Mendes France, a French Jewish politician turned resistance fighter, said. No, no, ça m'a, ça m'a montré que certaines tendances, certaines démagogies. There are certain tendencies and habits which, when they are fired, fed, or stimulated, crop up like weeds, and so we must always be on the defense. Oppression, when fired, fed, or stimulated, is something anyone could do. Dormant power lust, xenophobia, and reactionary conservatism exist in everyone or in every country, and they can be drummed up easily. In fact, it's less lust for power than submission to power. In The Sorrow and the Pity, Ophuls included many propaganda clips, not just made by the Germans, but ones that were made by the Vichy government, praising the new autocracy, Marshal Patton, and the return to conservative values. It's good that we got rid of the Jews, the homosexuals, now we're truly French again. Another version of this is going on today in France with persecution and fear of Muslims and immigrants, and in the U.S. and everywhere. Luckily, the French occupation ended. And this process became decades of suppressing the memories of it ever having happened at all. Until Marcel Ophuls created this monumental documentary about it 25 years later. And that suppression is what we're here to dredge up. As a wise psychoanalytical phrase I heard once said, What you resist persists. Repressing memories never undoes them. They go underground and emerge when you least expect it in Freudian slips and dreams. We're doomed to repeat the past if it's not acknowledged. The French who collaborated, the men who did nothing, try to forget those roles. The former resistors are now overly proud. Good underdog identities last too long. Bad overdog identities are forgotten too fast. The film showed people's relationships with their past, and it often shows people saying, I wasn't there, I didn't know. And then Ophuls would find documentary evidence showing that the people were there. Maybe they forgot, maybe they lied, maybe they suppressed the painful or embarrassing memories. A shopkeeper who advertised in the paper that he wasn't a Jew, come shop at my store, I'm not Jewish. At the very end, the film showed internationally famous actor and singer Maurice Chevalier nervously, publicly, painfully stating that he had never performed for the Germans, that he was never in Germany, that he had nothing to do with it. Hello, everybody. Here is your old friend, Maurice Chevalier, speaking to you from Paris, where I was born. Ladies and gentlemen, some time ago, they said in the newspapers and the radio that I had been killed. Yes, yes, they said uh, once that I had been killed 
in a railroad accident. Then they said that I had been shot by the Gestapo. Hmm? Then they said that I had been shot by the Patriots. Mm -hmm. Then they said <laughs> that I had been shot by the militians. Yes. Well, you see, for a man who, who's been shot so many times, <laughs> I don't look so bad, eh? Well, there is something I'd like to make clear to you. At the end of 1941, a false propaganda made the people of France and of the whole world believe that, as an artist, I had made a tour of Germany during the war, during the German occupation in France. I want to say that it is absolutely untrue. I have never made a tour of Germany whatsoever. I just accepted to go and sing in a prisoner's camp in Germany a French prisoner's camp where I had been a prisoner myself in the last war. I just sang there one afternoon to cheer up the boys and I never sang anywhere else. I hope that France will soon recover. And I also, also hope that uh, very soon also I'll be able to come up and see you sometime. Chevalier's defense recorded after the war feels very suspect but instead of showing evidence of him lying which probably there was instead the sorrow and the pity just ends on this note of complexity and uncertainty it really doesn't matter the ambiguity and interconnectedness and complicity of everyone is shown by the leaving it blank ending of the movie i basically think that this film's subject was not just world war ii and not even the immediate parallels to the film that moviegoers would have recognized, violence and occupation in the 1960s and 70s in Algeria and Vietnam around the world. Rather, I think that the film is intended to be a recording of people's immemorial attempts to not remember, to elide and rewrite and reinterpret history. The parallels are endless. Power behaves the same. Put a cat in a cage. The cat will be the cat will be the most violent animal. So, this is what is happening. You know, they are, you know, what happened with me today? It's happening to millions of Palestinians. Targeting the dignity. When you are targeting a Tamban dignity, you cross the lines. So, are you saying that part of your understanding of why this has happened is because? Jews feel like they haven't been given dignity. Yes. It's very obvious. You know, it's not secret. And I'm afraid of my nation in the future to have the same problem. Doing this to Yeah. To other people. So do you think it's just like the nature of power, maybe? Like that anyone, no matter how disempowered they feel, if overpowered, would be oppressive or abusive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a really leading question. Sorry. So why don't we, or American monolithic hero narratives, care as much about Palestinian liberation as we do about the liberation of France? Why do we narratively think about the French resistance as heroes and Palestinians as terrorists? As we've been discussing, it's in many ways the same story. The difference, in many obvious respects, is the villain, either played by Germany or Israel, the latter of which is very complex and really created by the former. 
which leads to a lot of conflicted feelings about the Jews and morality. What led me to watch The Sorrow and the Pity was news that Marcel Ophuls, himself a kind of pan-European, French-German-Jewish, now-aged 88 person, um, was coming out with a new documentary, either called Unpleasant Truths or Let My People Go. The elongated trailer for this new movie is amazing. See it in the body of the Bandcamp page. All credit to Marcel for making one documentary about occupied France in 1969 and another about occupied Palestine in 2016. A lot of people care about the sorrow and the pity, and a lot of people celebratorily care about the French resistance, which Marcel Ophuls both indulges and complicates. I wanted to know more about the French resistance, having heard more about Palestinian resistance, so I watched this movie. And what we want to talk about is, why do we care about what we care about? Would people care more about Palestinians if they were European? And but some are. There is no pure narrative, just like Ophuls himself. Some Palestinians are of Armenian descent. Some Israeli Jews are from Yemen. Indigeneity and origin stories complicate each other. How are we understanding this narrative? Would people care more about Palestine if not for the overwhelming narrative, especially to Americans and to Jews, of the moral foundation of Israel? It's like the narrative of Israel is so big we can't see anything else. Here's Anthony Eden again with this powerful defense of the choices made by people in impossible situations. Hearing him this time, let's think about the way he uses the terms occupied country and foreign power. If one hasn't been through, as our people mercifully did not go through, the horrors of an occupation by a foreign power, you have no right to pronounce upon what a country does which has been through all that. Anthony Eden was the most high-profile interviewee in The Sorrow and the Pity. He was the British Prime Minister after Winston Churchill, uh, ruling from 1955 to 57, a career minister, dapper, ruling class. You can tell that background because he speaks fluent French. Fashion-defining, apparently, a certain type of hat that he favored was named after him in the 40s, and the leader, along with France and Israel, of a 1956 invasion of Egypt that is called in Western historiography the Suez Crisis. Egypt calls it the tripartite aggression. The Suez Canal, storm center of controversy for weeks, now becomes a cause of war in a lightning sequence of diplomatic and military moves. The three countries preemptively invaded Egypt after it nationalized the Suez Canal. Since its seizure and nationalization by President Nasser of Egypt, the vital waterway has precipitated a new crisis in the already tense Middle East. Crack French units are embarked at Marseille, bound for a joint staging area with Great Britain on Cyprus. Less than an hour's flight from Egyptian ports, where they are prepared for seizure of the canal by force. A naval concentration in the eastern Mediterranean strengthens the military buildup, even as Israel, in a lightning attack, thrusts deep into Egypt to the vicinity of the canal. Calling this event the Suez Crisis sounds softer than calling it a preemptive war or illegal invasion condemned by the United Nations. It makes it sound more like the Cuban Missile Crisis, which wasn't a war. This, however, was a war. Anthony Eden sounds great and humane in the film when he talks about occupation and humility. But when we're comparing this movie, we got to remember for him, a former British prime minister who led a colonial empire and who presided over many interventions by that power, 
I think for him and for every British administrator involved in the story of Israel-Palestine, like previous Prime Minister Arthur Balfour, none of them could have comprehended that a non-Western country could have fit the description of an occupied country. This sympathetic occupied description, they just wouldn't have thought of these places as on equal footing with themselves. France had the capacity to be occupied and to resist, whereas these non-Western places were there only for them to exploit and subjugate. They couldn't have understood that their resistance was on the same plane as Western resistance to the Germans. Also, Eden is a former politician out of power and reflecting, like McNamara in The Fog of War, or the former intelligence leaders in the Israeli movie The Gatekeepers. Same concept, power abuses, but out of power, former powers can afford to be more wistful. Ophels interviews several former German soldiers, and one French aristocrat who fought for Germany. Kindly older men can explain their good intentions, their temptations, their remorse, their sympathetic failings. And again, this should hopefully complicate the idea we've been saying in this episode of France as just victim, because France was involved as the occupying colonial power in several post-World War II conflicts, the Suez Crisis, the wars in Vietnam and Algeria. Intent doesn't matter. So, we just did a lot of important things. Yes. But can we go further? Can we go further? Well, let's find out. Okay. A theme I keep returning to on Humble Mumbles is the uses of others. How overclasses paint underclasses as bad, primarily and unconsciously based on their own fears and desires to be good. There's a scene in this movie where Germans say that occupied France, specifically French women at a fancy dress-up derby thing, Paris has become Paris again. The other condescendingly calls the thing itself, like men telling women what women are and how they should be good women, etc. The Germans attempted to replace France with their idea of France, like gentrifiers or settlers. One fitting way of thinking about the uses of others in terms of Palestine, of course, is Orientalism. This documentary reminded me of another documentary, Valentino's Ghost. America's love affair with Arabia reached a frenzy with The Sheikh, starring Rudolph Valentino, because it was represented as a place where there was a lot of romance and excitement. What ended America's love affair with Arabia was actual contact. The British Empire invaded Egypt and Palestine. In the media, the Arabs, not the British, were the attackers. It's not just the image of the Sheikh, but also Lawrence of Arabia or Dune or the Sex and the City movie where they go to Dubai. Matthew and Pew in the whole series. All this Arab Orientalism is descended from the Valentino school and is a general way of understanding how others are used by people in power to prove a point to the powerful about who they think they are. And this intensified romantic fantasy is dispelled on actual contact. Another way of saying the uses of others is this paraphrase of Edward Said's, Dreams Obfuscating Reality. We see this in Zionist dreams that erase and subjugate Palestine to the dream of Zionists. We see it in the romance of misogyny, the great love men are taught to feel for women as weak and stupid. In any hierarchy, narratives about others serve to help narrators fulfill something in themselves. These dreams are built on distance. Actual contact is a shock. Romance, sex, country, family, all these big ideas are based on dreams. What happens when dreams obfuscate reality? 
colonialism, racism, orientalism, and patriarchal sexist otherizing are the realities behind the dreams of Germany occupying France or Israel occupying Palestine. It ultimately doesn't matter how beautiful the dream is to the dreamer. Domination is still a nightmare. Hello, everybody. Here is your old friend, Maurice Chevalier. The French fled Paris, jamming the roads, panicked by the swift German advance. A naval concentration in the eastern Mediterranean strengthens the military buildup, even as Israel, in a lightning attack, thrusts, 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 thrusts deep into Egypt to the vicinity of the canal. And we didn't hear about a list of settlers and that they are prosecuting them. Why? Okay, okay, call the, you call your commander, call the police. It was very shocking, like which infrastructure, definitely not in Ramallah. Call them. Call them. No, no. Call them. You know, why you to talk to me? I have rights. I have rights, you know. If Hebron has a Jewish history, it doesn't mean that they own it. And it doesn't mean, if it's with the Palestinians, it doesn't mean that they can't visit it or live in it. I've lived here my whole life, even after I got married. This is the only place I've lived. So what do you expect these people to do? This is the situation. There is no future. The response of people in power may be that you can't blame everything on them. Well, I perfectly understand that many Palestinians look at the Israeli occupation as a source of uh, anger. But they should understand that the reality is totally different. You cannot blame everything and anything on the Israeli occupation. Whereas the retrospective words by Anthony Eden suggest that you can't judge the actions of people at all who were under occupation. If one hasn't been through, as our people mercifully did not go through, the horrors of an occupation, by a foreign power. You have no right to pronounce upon what a country does, which has been through all that. These are two contradictory ideas. And in response, we'd like to leave you with the following by journalist Daniel Roth. From afar, it seems that this place is broken, and these people are all cut up and bloodied by the shards left after the fall. And it seems odd at first to sit in a theater in a suburban lot in Israel and watch The Force Awaken and Hungry Games of Revolution. How can they not see the irony in rooting for the heroes, we ask, as we walk out of a theater millions of miles away, built on a different kind of destruction? Dreams of building something beautiful as a collective culture, doing nothing to neighbors that one might find hateful to oneself, stand in stark contrast to the nationalism and militarism and statism and jingoism, and storytellingism. Here and there, the argument is exclusively about survival. And ironically, it has only become bitterer as the sounds of broken silence are an invitation to a darkness that some wrap themselves in, cackling and violent, unable to see who their neighbors are, willing to bloody everyone they see below. For so many so far away, this place and these people are caricatures, and characters in a story with terrible dialogue but outstanding set design. 
so-called Zionists and anti-Zionists wax on and wax off, drawing lines that don't exist on maps that are too old, wondering who is pro and who is anti, forgetting that these places and these people are brothers and mothers, complex relationships, desires for self-determination, and clear and present occupation. Humble Mumbles is a production of Rebecca Books LLC, an affiliate of both Bookstyle Publications and Barbarism. Never Forget Radio is a production of Bookstyle Publications, currently based in West Philadelphia. Find both of these podcasts on Bandcamp, Stitcher, and iTunes. Would you like to subscribe and rate these pods on iTunes? You can do that too. Send your phallic attacks on the British Empire to neverforgetradio at gmail, iTunes, Bandcamp, and Tumblr, or neverforgetpod on Twitter. Music for this episode was provided by Old Table, radio on the road between Hebron and Ramallah, Letrio Gibran live in East Jerusalem in 2015, and the Paleo Festival Nyan in 2012 as well as assorted hyperbolic movie trailers and news footage snippets. One of the subjects of tonight's episode, Isa Amro, was recently arrested again and subsequently released, while the Center for His Nonviolent Group Youth Against Settlements has been designated a closed military zone since November. Follow Youth Against Settlements and Adamir on Facebook. Stay tuned for the next episode of Humble Mumbles, which will be an interview with me, Mary Abu Ghattas, some of my family's history of 1948, the culture of Ramallah, Friendship Oasis, the manual on how to be happy in Palestine, and the PFLP, that's the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Today's quote and exit song is by Maurice Chevalier. Thank you and never forget. I can't help thinking of a song that I used to sing some time ago when I was in your country. And that song went about like this. I, I don't play the piano, so you, you excuse me, eh? I'll sing without the piano. And let the whole world sigh or cry, I'll be high in the sky, up on top of a rainbow, sweeping the clouds away.